We are going to be in Psalm 85 together this morning, and so I encourage you to open your Bibles there and be ready to hear from the Lord on the subject matter of revival. A true revival sent from God is the church's greatest need. For decades I have believed this and preached for it and prayed for it as many others have as well. The church does not need smoother, well-oiled programs, bigger budgets, or more volunteers. What the church needs more than anything else in the world is a spirit-breathed awakening a fresh work of God to awaken us from our spiritual slumber and pathetic religion. A true revival sent from God is the church's greatest need. But what is revival? How can we define revival biblically? Steve Lawson does an excellent job of defining revival when he writes this, quote, literally, the word itself means a restoring back to the fullness of life that which has become stagnant or dormant. It is a rekindling of spiritual life in individual believers and churches which have fallen into sluggish times. True revival always returns God's people to a fresh and vivid emphasis on the holiness and righteousness of God, his judgment on sin, true repentance, and the overflowing effect of personal conversions to Christ. This sudden awareness of the overwhelming presence of God is the hallmark of any revival. It is a supernatural work of God in which he visits his people, restoring spiritual life to their hearts as well as ushering salvation into many souls. Such a revival is always a sovereign work of God in response to the prayers of his people, and it leaves a lasting mark on his work forever. While this description of biblical revival is thorough and very helpful, perhaps the shortest and simplest definition is that which is found in Acts 3 and verse 20. A revival is a time of spiritual refreshing that comes from God. Repent, therefore, Peter preached, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In the Bible, times of refreshing have always been accompanied by the restoration of the Scripture to its rightful place in the life of God's people whether it was through Ezra and Nehemiah after the people's return from exile or the dramatic rediscovery of the scriptures during the reign of the seven-year-old boy king Josiah. God has always used his word to renew his people. Always. 
Additionally, Scripture also demonstrates that revival is preceded by the cry of God's people for deliverance. In his book on revival, Walter Kaiser writes, when evil and wickedness seem to grow like weeds on the landscape, God has often graciously given his people as the first signal of revival fires a deep yearning for relief that knows no other language than the cry for deliverance. Psalm 85 is one of those cries for deliverance. It is a cry for God's deliverance and God's revival of his people. It is a prayer offered to God in the midst of difficult days when the people of Israel have returned to the promised land from their 70 years of exile in Babylon. It is a plea to God for restoration and full renewal. Follow with me as I read this prayer, Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath You turn from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yet the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The writers of this song are the sons of Korah, at least some of the sons of Korah. These musicians were descendants of one of the most infamous troublemakers in the entire Old Testament and in the congregation of Israel. Number 16 tells us all about Korah, who along with Dathan and Abiram led a rebellion against Moses. Really, it was against God's authority as coming through the leadership of Moses. And as a result, God's judgment came upon them. God very dramatically took care of the problem by opening up the earth and swallowing these men alive. What a dramatic demonstration of the holiness of God. And in light of having an ancestor like this, you might be tempted to think that the descendants of Korah would find no mercy from God ever. But God doesn't work that way. 
God doesn't hold an individual responsible for the sins of his father. He shall not, according to God's law, be put to death for his father's sin, but each man is individually held accountable to God. So as Kaiser observes, quote, the marvelous grace of God did not hold against the lineal descendants of Korah the faults that overtook their forefather, but instead raised them to even great heights by allowing them to be the authors of Scripture, which included 12 psalms. And so it is with God. So it is with his sovereign grace that it it reaches into the most unexpected places and redeems sinners for his glory many times in spite of their spiritual heritage or upbringing. This is the God of grace and mercy. So this song is written by men who had experienced the saving grace of God personally, and yet they saw among the people of God a pathetic spiritual state. And therefore, they cried out to God to send a revival. And in their heart's cry, we see four conditions of true revival. Notice first, to experience true revival, the people of God must review God's merciful restoration in the past. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. To experience true revival, the people of God must review God's merciful restoration in the past. There are six verbs in these three verses, and all of them review the ways that God worked in Israel's past. Notice verse 1, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. God, according to the promises that he had brought through the prophets and the warnings that the prophets preached to the people of God, All of these events took place for the purpose of bringing them back to God that they might experience renewal, restoration, and revival. Notice verse 2 that God's restoration was not limited to returning the people to the promised land as Jeremiah 29 had promised, but it also included spiritual restoration and revival. Not only were they restored to the fortunes of Jacob, speaking of of the land and all the earthly blessings that God had given to Israel, there was also a spiritual renewal. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. The word iniquity is from the Hebrew word, which means corrupt or twisted, bent, perverse, or crooked. Lawson says, to the, to the degree that a person sins, he becomes a twisted creature within his own soul. And so it is that God forgave his people their iniquity. 
The kinds of sin that are referred to here in verse 2 refer to one's relationship to God and to his word. And and God forgave these sins. God forgave their, their attitude that they had toward the word of God. The word for, forgave means to, to lift up. And, and so it is that God has lifted up his people from the quicksand of sin. It is God alone who can rescue and restore. No man, no woman, no child has the ability in and of themselves to lift themselves out of sin. It is God and God alone who can forgive. And this is what he did for Israel. Kaiser writes, the sin question must always be dealt with first or the quest for renewal and reviving of life among God's people will be dead in the water even before it starts. You cannot have true revival without a turning from sin. You cannot have revival without forgiveness from God. And verse 3 makes it very clear that forgiveness is only possible when divine wrath is propitiated, that is, satisfied by a sacrifice. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. See, the, the removal of God's wrath can only take place when his righteous demands, the demands of his law, are properly satisfied. And, and praise be to him that God has done this for us through Christ. It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ that the wrath of God has been satisfied And it's only by his mercy that God now turns his wrath away from his people when we are so worthy of his judgment. When the sins of God's people are honestly confessed to the Lord, then and only then can true revival begin. That's the first lesson we learn, the first condition of true revival. But there is a second lesson in verses 4 through 7, and that is to experience true revival, the people of God must repent of evil and plead with God for revival. So not only do we need to review the gracious and merciful work of God in the past, the way that he has forgiven us all of our sin and predominantly the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary which has taken all of our sins away. So we must repent of current sin, repent of present evil and plead with God for revival. These verses further develop the principle that's found there in verse 2. That is, that true revival is always preceded by repentance. But this repentance is accompanied by a return to the priority of prayer. When God's people are brought under intense conviction of sin and deep sorrow and trial, they plead with God for mercy. They plead with God that he will turn back his anger. And so notice how he prays, how the sons of Korah pray here in verse 
4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Restore us, notice, again. In other words, looking back in verses to, to verses 1 through 3, do what you've done in the past. Please, O God, be merciful to us again. Send another awakening. Send another revival. Save your church from the judgment that she deserves. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Three questions that are the cry of the heart, and yet three questions that do by faith expect to be answered by God. The sons of Korah understood that only God can bring true revival to his people. And so they prayed, Restore us again, O God. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The exuberant joy is one of the fruits of revival. One of the clearest marks of revival is a renewed joy in the worship of God's people. Spiritually dull people who will not sing with all of their heart to the Savior will through revival become transformed into joyful worshipers. Stuffed shirts are awakened unto new life by God. True revival is always evidenced by a return to the worship of God. And true revival is always preceded by genuine contrition of heart, which includes brokenness over sin. When revival comes, then gone are religious pretenses. Gone are the judgmental spirits that look down over snooty noses down to sinners who they deem worse than themselves. Sifted out are all of the pretenders. And only the Holy Spirit of God can strip away all of the nonsense that Americans call church. Only the Holy Spirit can send the winds of revival across the landscape of God's people. I think it's interesting that in past generations, it was common for churches to schedule revival meetings to place them on their annual church calendar. And though the intentions were undoubtedly pure and good, it is worth making clear that no man, no woman, no boy, no girl, no church can schedule a revival. God shows up in his awesome presence whenever he chooses to show up. 
not when we schedule him to do so. And as it was in verses 1 through 3, the repetition of you in verses 4 through 6 indicates that revival is a sovereign work of God. Yes, there are patterns of conditions that we see in the Bible, but it is equally true that no man can demand a revival from God, nor can we schedule it ahead of time on our calendars. The only thing that we can do to bring revival to our church and to our land is to repent of our own sin and to cry out to God for mercy and to get serious about following Christ. You might ask, what do professing Christians need to repent of? Oh, I look at the unbelieving world and I see all kinds of things that the world needs to repent of. But what do Christians need to repent of? Well, how about just for starters, something like worldliness or lukewarmness or rampant immorality among believers, divisiveness and gossip, selfishness and robbing God so that we can spend more on ourselves. How about failure to read God's word, failure to listen to God's word, failure to obey God's word? How about whole denominations of churches turning away from the scriptures, redefining marriage or destroying the marriage covenant altogether? And the list goes on. What do professing Christians need to repent of? What do God's people need to repent of? The list is endless. Jesus' rebuke of some of the churches in Asia Minor, as recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, sounds like current events. Listen to the words of Jesus. I think Jesus would say that the modern church is like Ephesus, to whom he said, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The modern church is like Pergamum, to whom Jesus said, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, that is, the love of money, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, that is, that grace is a license to sin. Jesus says, therefore, repent. The modern church is like Thyatira, to whom Jesus said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. 
or the modern church could be said to be like Laodicea to whom Jesus said I know your works you are neither cold nor hot oh I would prefer that you were either cold or hot but because you are lukewarm and not hot or cold I will spit you out of my mouth for you say I am rich I have prospered I don't need anything not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus goes on to say, I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The stomach-turning condition of the American church is grievous to our Savior. How, I ask you, how can Christians call upon the unsaved world to change their ways if we ourselves will not repent? Like the psalmist, we must pray, God, grant us your salvation. And the salvation that's referred to there in verse 7 isn't the, the salvation that brings us into the family of God for the very first time, but this is deliverance. Deliverance from the present judgment. So today, God is calling us to repent of evil and to plead with him for revival. So once again, we're reminded that revival is for God's people. Revival isn't for the unsaved world. Evangelism is for the unsaved world. Revival is for God's people. We are the ones who must be awakened out of our slumber. We are the ones in need of revival. But there is a third condition to revival, not only turning from our sin and pleading with God, not only reviewing the gracious works of God in the past, but Notice a third in verses 8 and 9. To experience true revival, the people of God must revere God and receive his word with eagerness. When God visits his people with a time of refreshing, there will be a resurgence of love for the Bible. Love for the word of God will flow from God's people. Personal and small group Bible study will again flourish. There will be a hunger for the word that will overcome all lesser appetites. In his book, The Glorious Revival under King Hezekiah, Wilbur Smith writes, a revival which does not rest solidly 
upon the word of God will ultimately either fade out because there is no fountain of divine truth continually refreshing it or it will run into dangerous and sensational emotionalism which after it has passed will make those who have been the subjects of such an experience dry and indifferent to the things of God at times more easily accessible than ever to the inroads of Satan himself. There is something, Smith said, there is something about the word of God that men recognize as divine. When it is preached, men know that they are hearing the word of God and nothing less will ever arouse a nation sunk in selfishness, self-satisfaction, and godlessness. And so this, the writers of Psalm 85 pray in verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people. This comes to those, verse 9, who fear him. When God's people humbly receive his word with eagerness, they will not want to return to their folly. Gone will be petty, pride-filled arguments and conflicts. Gone will be ritualistic reading without life application. Gone will be the habitual seeking of spiritual information, but always falling short of coming to the knowledge of the truth. Instead, we will want to hear from God. We will want a closer walk with God. A return to the holy reverence of God is evidenced by taking his word seriously. When the people of God are those who fear him, verse 9, they will also then be the people of God who say, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. A return to the holy reverence of God is evidenced by taking his word seriously and it will always accompany true revival. It is in the scriptures alone that we hear the voice of God. It is here that God draws near. If you are one of those who insist upon hearing God's voice audibly, then I say to you, read the Bible out loud. Because it is in the scriptures that God speaks to us. It's in the scriptures alone that we know the will of God. Clearly what we see happening here in verses 8 and 9 is the psalmist deepest longing for the manifestation of God's awesome presence. But he knows, he knows that this will never happen without a return to the word of God. And when there is a widespread fear of God, verse 9 says, God's glory will fill the land. The repentance and righteousness of God's people will spill over 
even impacting the lives of the unbelieving world, even affecting an entire nation. And oh, how our nation needs to fear the Lord. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. That, that there is a spillover effect when the church of God is revived, when the people of God return to the word of God and fear him, then it impacts all of society. The wickedness of our nation is exceedingly great. We deserve great judgment. Our nation's attitude toward the weakest among us is despicable. It is true that since the first coronavirus death in the United States was recorded 30 days ago, the death toll has risen to over 2,000. And this breaks our hearts and it concerns us greatly. And people are in an uproar and we are praying for this pestilence to end. But even more tragic and heartbreaking is the knowledge that Planned Parenthood takes the same number of human lives every two days. Almost a thousand lives a day. But where is the uproar? Where is the media coverage? Where is the grief over this mass genocide. Since the Supreme Court passed Roe v. Wade in 1973, legalizing abortion in the United States, our nation has killed 10 times more human beings than Adolf Hitler killed. 10 times more. If this does not rip our heart out of our chest, there is something seriously wrong with us. And if the church can be silent in the midst of such mass genocide, how can God ever bless? We pray for this to end. We pray for deliverance. And added to the atrocity of abortion is the rise now of physician-assisted suicide. So if the population control liars can't take care of the inconvenience of children before they are born, then they will get rid of the elderly who inconvenience us at the end of life. Oh, we pray Verse 9. May his salvation be near to those who fear him. It is time. It is time for the people of God to reverence him and take the authority of his word seriously. There is a fourth condition in verses 10 through 13. Fourth and finally, to experience true revival, the people of God must recognize 
God's expectation of righteousness. We must recognize that God expects that the gift of righteousness that he gives to us through faith in Jesus Christ will work itself out into righteous living. When God visits his people with true revival, a harvest of righteousness will become increasingly evident in their lives. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. When God's righteousness and mercy and peace join together, they bring forth the fruit of righteousness in his people. There is faithfulness or truth which becomes the hallmark of God's people. Gone is the everyday lying that saves face and covers our laziness. Gone is tiptoeing on the edge of immorality so that when we cross the line we may say we fell into sin when in reality we chose it. Like Achan who stood, who, who hid his stolen goods under his tent, so we covet and we take and we want and we hoard. Gone is flirting with sin. Like Abraham's nephew Lot who turned his eyes towards Sodom and Gomorrah and soon found himself living there. So we are allured. We look and we are allured and we sink into the comforts of sin. When God's people are revived, there will be a harvest of righteousness and faithfulness and truth. But verse 12 takes it even further. Again, that the righteousness of God's people spills over into national blessing. Our land will yield its increase. This is another version of Proverbs 14.34, which says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When God's Revival comes, then his law becomes respected all the way up to national leadership. That was the case in every Old Testament revival. Even the king of the land bowed down before God. Righteousness will go before the Lord and make his footsteps away. And so when God visits his people with true revival, the righteousness that is a gift of his grace will become the new standard of living. But this kind of revival will not come. It will not come to us people without pleading for it without humbly seeking after God in genuine repentance and hearty obedience. This is the road to revival. 
This is beautifully summarized in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Contrary to popular belief, this verse is not about the United States of America. This is for the people of God in every generation. If my people, God says, who are called by my name, humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face, if they will turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will bless. See, the blessing of the world comes through the blessing of God's people. Though given to Israel at a point in history, the truth of that verse is for all of God's people in all places for all time. Because what it says to us is revival requires humility, prayer, seeking God's face, repentance, and returning to righteousness. And when these conditions are met, God will visit his people with powerful presence once again. And the blessings upon the people of God will be so great that they will spill over into the blessing and healing of a nation. The four conditions that we see here in Psalm 85 are present in every Revival that is recorded in the Bible. When God's sovereign grace revives his people, there will be a return to the word of God. God's people will hunger for biblical preaching, not superficial self-help fluff. They will long to chew on the meat of the word, not swallow the cool whip of pop psychology. We will put down our screens and pick up our Bibles. There will be a return to prayer. We will lay aside our laziness and self-sufficiency and we will cry out to God to again be merciful to us. We will confess our sins. We will stop coming up with excuses and new labels for our behavior and our attitudes, and we will repent of the thousands of ways that we rebel in our hearts against the Lordship of Christ. And we will pursue personal holiness. Our calloused hearts will be softened and our dull consciences will be awakened by the Spirit of God who gives us life. Instead of winking at our own sin and making a big deal out of other people's sin, we will be like the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke who couldn't even look at God while he beat his chest 
saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so I say, if God uses a microscopic virus to bring the world to its knees, then glory be to him. Then so be it. Because he knows what we need more than anything else. And all that God is doing in our present day, we cannot know. I don't even pretend to know. He is sovereign. We are not. But let it be said of the people of God that we will not waste this pandemic. We will not waste this. We will humble ourselves before God and we will allow him to do in us whatever it takes to revive his church. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As Christians, we need to stop saying, God, would you just judge the world? And we need to realize that judgment is first going to come to us. Judgment will first come to the household of God. We are the ones who need revival. And many have been praying for revival for a long, long time. And perhaps we will see another great awakening. I pray we will. I hope we will. I long that we will. But there are conditions to be met. But all praise to God that every condition of revival can be met in and through the Lord Jesus. God's mercy is abundantly available to all who will turn to Jesus today. He will forgive all of your sins. He will restore you. He will give to you the new life that you need. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me say to you this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Receive the message of the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He did this that Jesus would become the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that we could then be saved through his death and resurrection. Receive this gift of salvation from God. Receive his righteousness in place of your sin. If you do not know Jesus in this way, I plead with you, turn to him today. And if you are already saved, then I say to you, plead with God to renew your love for him, to start a revival, and to let it begin with you. Father, we hardly know how to pray when we see 
the greatness of your mercy compared to the greatness of our sin. And we are so thankful that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Lord, as your people, we have sinned. The church worldwide, the church especially here in the United States, has sinned so greatly against you by casting your word to the wayside and going on our own way. God, we pray, forgive us our sins. Bring to us a revival. And let it begin with me. Let it begin with each one of us as we turn from our wicked ways, as we seek you with all of our heart, as we pray, as we lean upon you. God, we ask, do a mighty, mighty work of spiritual revival in us, among us, and through us, that the nations of the world might be blessed by the fruit of what you do through your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.